Well, if you have a Bible, I would ask you to turn with me in your copy to John 17. Uh, children, if you grabbed one of those red ESV children's Bibles from the narthex there, it's on page 1328, 1328 in the children's Bibles. And we're going to be looking at verses 6 through 19 this morning. This is our third of a four-part series through John 17, what we're referring to as our Lord's Prayer, commonly called the High Priestly Prayer, and we'll, we'll explain that a little bit more as we look at the text today. So John chapter 17, beginning in verse 6, this is the Word of God. Please take heed how you hear it. Jesus speaking, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them, and I am no longer in the world. But they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth." As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world, and for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. This is the end of this part of the reading of God's Word. Well, last week we looked at a few of the high watermarks of Jesus' prayer in John 17, which we're calling our Lord's Prayer. Again, Most people think of the Lord's Prayer as Matthew 6 and Luke 11, which we recited together in our earlier prayer, but this is really the prayer our Lord prayed in John 17, whereas the prayer that we pray is the disciples' prayer. It's the model prayer He gave us. And if you were here last Sunday morning, you'll remember that we highlighted three what we called high watermarks of Christ's prayer for us. He prays for our preservation. I'm sure you heard in this segment that we read this morning the repeated refrain, keep them, keep them, I have kept them, I want you to keep them in the world, and so forth. And we talked about that at length last week. Jesus also prays for our sanctification, that is, our being set apart from the world, from common profane use, unto a holy use, unto God, as well as our growth in personal holiness, that we might become more and more like our Savior. And then finally, in verse 24, what might be the greatest words Jesus ever speaks on behalf of His people, He asks the Father to glorify us, to bring us where He is in heaven. Well, now we come to the center of Christ's prayer, where He really begins His intercessory work. He really starts to pray for us, for His people in verses 6 and following. 
The first five verses, which we looked at last Sunday evening, are his prayer for himself, which detail for us his pre-incarnate glory, the relationship that he has with the Father from before the world began, and eternal life. Uh, But now we see him praying specifically for those who will be uh, left behind or remain here while he ascends into heaven. Um, This is really, the reason it's called Jesus' high priestly prayer is because John 17 is the chief expression of his priestly office in his estate of humiliation. And what we mean by that is during his earthly ministry, everything from his birth, his humble lowly birth in a stable, all the way through his burial post-mortem are part of Christ's humiliation, where he took on flesh and became like us in every way except without sin. In order to sympathize with us in our weakness, don't miss that, Uh, Christ wasn't humiliated only for the sake of humiliation, but for the sake of our exaltation. So what he experienced in his humiliation relates to us and our experience on earth, and he can grieve with us and understands our infirmities, and so that way in his resurrection we can be raised to new life. But here he begins his intercessory work uh, as our great high priest. Now one thing that we can't do is we can't divorce Christ's intercession from his sacrifice. We can't separate this prayer as if it's just a chapter that stands alone, disconnected from the rest of what's going on around it in space and time. And this prayer is offered in the range of a few hours, a dozen hours or so, from the time that Jesus will die on the cross. And the reason that those things are inseparable is because it's reflective of the Old Testament priests and their responsibility before God and the people. They would offer sacrifices, uh, the blood of bulls and goats, which of course we know doesn't actually pay for sin, but it symbolizes, it points forward to the fullness of that reality in Christ. And then they would also pray for the people. And so Christ here in his high priestly prayer isn't just praying, he's praying in light of his sacrifice which is why he can say the sort of things he says and ask the sort of things he asks. And we'll see that a little bit more as we go through. Our confession says this in the larger catechism, number 44. It asks, how does Christ execute the office of a priest? And it says, Christ executes the office of a priest in his once offering himself as a sacrifice, there's that one part, without spot before God, to be a reconciliation for his people, and in making continual intercession. So our, our denominational, our doctrinal standards join those two things together, his priestly work as sacrifice and as intercessor. And that's what we see here in this text. So this morning, we want to look at three ways that Jesus prays for us. Uh, maybe we could say it this way, three expressions of his high priestly prayer. First, we see that Jesus prayed with gratitude. Jesus prayed with gratitude. Second, that Jesus prayed with focus, and we'll see what that means uh, in our second point. And then finally, and this might be a little confusing, I'll explain it when we get there, Jesus prayed with hyperbole, uh, maybe a little bit of exaggeration, and I'll explain what I mean by that. And as we consider these things, I want each of us to be asking this question, how does Jesus' gratitude, focus, and hyperbole impact my thoughts about myself and my fellow Christians? 
Let me say that again. This is what you should be asking yourself as we go through this text together. How does Jesus' prayer of gratitude, focus, and hyperbole impact my thoughts about myself and my fellow Christians? Let's look first at Jesus' prayer of gratitude. He says in verses 6 through 10, I have manifested your name to these people whom you gave me. They were yours and you gave them to me. Everything that you have given me is from you, and I have given them the words that you gave me. You hear this? Giving, 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 giving over and over. Jesus is reflecting on all that God has given him, including the people that he's given him. I'm not sure we often think of Jesus as grateful, do we? We think of Jesus as powerful. We can highlight stories in the Gospels of Jesus' power on display, calming the winds and waves, walking on the water, healing people with terrible diseases as he walked around uh, the land of Israel. We think of Jesus as compassionate. Uh, He looked out on the people who were helpless and lost like sheep without a shepherd, and he had compassion on them, and he even fed them, didn't he? We can think of Jesus as a great teacher. Uh, The instruction that he gave was full of authority, and people would say, who has ever spoken like this man? We can think of him in all these different terms, but do we think of Jesus as grateful? I think we should, and there's evidence for this across the pages of the Gospels. Consider Jesus' earthly ministry with me for just a minute. Think of all the times that Jesus interacts with the Father in a public setting. Prior to feeding the 4,000 and the 5,000, it tells us that he blessed God and gave thanks and broke the bread before feeding the people. Or at the Last Supper in the upper room, which we celebrated the Lord's Supper last Sunday, you'll remember the words that after saying these things, he gave thanks and then broke the bread. You remember what he was giving thanks for was not just the bread, but for what the bread represented, his sacrificial death on behalf of his people. Jesus is always giving thanks to God. In Matthew 11, uh, after lamenting the hard-heartedness of Chorazin and Bethsaida and pronouncing a woe on them, he says, I thank you, God, that you have hidden these things, his plan of redemption, from the so-called wise people and instead revealed it to little children. Jesus is always thanking God. And that should strike us as kind of strange. This is the Jesus who made everything. He spoke the universe into existence. By him, all things were made, and apart from him, not one thing has been made that is made. In him and through him and to him belong all things. In him we live and move and have our being. He's the king of the universe. He reigns over all. He exercises perfect authority and providence and sovereignty over all things. There's not one atom in the universe that does not respond to his command. And as we said last week, a great Abraham Kuyper quote, there is not one square inch in all the created cosmos over which Jesus does not stand and declare mine. He owns it all. And his heart is full of gratitude to the Father. That's amazing, isn't it? And I wonder if your heart is full of gratitude to God the way Jesus' heart is. Or have we lost our sense of gratitude and thanksgiving? You know, a couple extra zeros in the bank account, and we all but forget that everything comes from God. A good season, are you in one of those seasons where the waves seem to have disappeared and the boat's riding smoothly across the top of the water, and you think to yourself, look at my kingdom and all that I've done, how easy my life is, and how comfortable it is to sit back and relax. 
It's very easy for us to become distracted from gratefulness, isn't it? Our hearts are not marked with gratitude, and our prayers often fail to include the language of a thankful heart. I love listening to children pray, don't you? I listen to adults pray, I listen to myself pray, and I often hear what amounts to a sort of Christmas wish list. Lord, I need this, I want that, help with this or change that, usually other people. When I listen to children pray, have you ever listened to a child pray and thank God for their shoes, the new baseball they got that they found in the woods that looks like it's been chewed on by about a dozen dogs, for that bite of food or that one piece of candy they got, that kind word that someone said to them or that one person that you've totally forgotten about even existed and they're thankful to God for that person? Have you ever listened to a child pray like that? Hearts full of gratitude to God for everything he's done. And how often we forget that every good and perfect gift comes down from above. And we don't have hearts of gratitude, I fear. I've recently been interacting with the late 16th, early 17th century George Herbert. Obviously not in person, but I've been interacting with his work, his writing. George Herbert had the opportunity, well, his life was on the trajectory for him to have quite a name in his day, for him to be a pretty high-ranking man in the church, uh, to have a position that would have granted him great wealth and privilege and great uh, acclaim. And due to a series of God's kind, merciful circumstances, he achieved none of that and instead pastored a church that, from what I understand, would have fit in the Van Erden's living room. And he wrote a poem called Gratefulness. It's a longer poem, and I'll just give you an excerpt from it. But interestingly, I think what Herbert is asking for in this poem is the one thing that we need in order to maintain grateful hearts when everything around us seems to be falling apart. When you wish you had big and you end up with little. When you wish you had health and you end up with sickness. When you wish you had healed, mended relationships, but you end up with broken relationships. What's the one thing that we need in order to walk rightly before the Lord in those circumstances? Listen to what Herbert says. Speaking to God, he says, Thou that hast given so much to me, already God has given so much to me, my life, my health, my family, and so forth. Give one thing more. That one thing that you need in order to walk rightly before God when things are falling apart. He says, give one thing more, a grateful heart. Not thankful when it pleaseth me, as if thy blessings had spare days, but such a heart whose pulse may be thy praise. That's a grateful heart. And we hear that in Jesus' prayer to God, don't we? As he's praying for those you gave me, those whom you've given me, they are yours and you gave them to me. We hear his thankfulness to God for the gift that God had given him, which is us. Have you ever thought about yourself in those terms? That you are the eternal promise of God the Father to the Son. That when he made promises across the pages of the Old Testament to give to him an inheritance of nations, ask of me and I'll make the whole world yours, he was talking about you. 
And Jesus identifies that in this text, doesn't he? These are people out of the whole world that you gave me. It almost feels irreverent to say it, doesn't it? But you are the Father's gift to the Son. You are. Not perfect old you, not lovely old you, not beautiful old you, not special you, sinful you, weak you, broken you, scared you, helpless you, anxious you, failing you. God gave you as a gift to his son from eternity past. And Jesus knows that all those that he came to die for are the fathers. And they've been called by him from before the world began and given to his son as a gift. God's will for the redemption of his people is worked out in time in Jesus Christ. And the resulting uh, 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 conclusion of Jesus' ministry is the gift of nations. People from every tribe and language and tongue, which will worship him forever in heaven as we read about in Revelation, don't we? Because of what he's done. Our confession in chapter 8 concerning Christ the mediator says this, it pleased God in his eternal purpose, think about that, before the world began. The same before the world began that Jesus talks about in verses 1 through 5, the glory that we've shared from before the world existed, he says in verse 5. Back then, before he spoke things into existence, when there was not even nothing, but there was only God, it pleased God to choose and ordain the Lord Jesus, his only begotten son, to be the mediator between God and man, the prophet, priest, and king, the head and savior of his church, the heir of all things and judge of the world, unto whom, this Jesus, he did give from all eternity a people to be his seed. And to be by him in time redeemed, called, justified, sanctified, and glorified. This is what Jesus is grateful for. The plan of redemption and the people redeemed. Again, I wonder if you think of yourself in those terms as the one for whom Christ came to die. And the one for whom he thanks the Father for giving you to him. We face trials far differently than Jesus did, don't we? Don't forget, his prayer can't be divorced from his sacrifice. And so in the midst of this prayer, four particular people, for his disciples and those who will believe because of their word, he has in view the death he's about to die on the cross. And so he's not just grateful for, thankful for people given to him, like out of the blue, like I just showed up one day and here's this whole crowd of people to worship. He's going to have to get them from the Father by way of his death. And he's thankful for it. He's thankful for God's gift of his people to the Son. I wonder if you've ever gotten a gift from someone special, perhaps a grandparent who's no, no longer living or a parent or perhaps even from a stranger, from someone you don't know very well, but they give you something that's particularly thoughtful and it becomes special to you. Now, I'm not a particularly sentimental person. Um, 
I'm just not. I, I tell my parents somewhat jokingly that if the Lord were to take them at the same time to not look in on me for about six weeks because they'd only see me making trips back and forth to Goodwill from their house. I'm, I know, but I'm, I'm just not very sentimental. But there are some things that I have, what we might call artifacts, that matter more than others, particularly sweet gifts that have been given by a particularly special person, that just looking at them fills you with emotion. Do you know what I'm talking about? I imagine that if you were to just take a moment, each of you could picture something in your mind just like that. It fills you with joy and maybe a little sadness. It reminds you of a time in your life where a person who may not be there anymore, but that you love and love dearly. And it's because of the giver and it's because of the gift that you feel so much sentimentality about that object, isn't it? And Jesus here is reflecting on the value of the giver. God the Father gave him, his people, to be his own. And of the gift of you and me, those whom he came to die for. Imagine, imagine how much love Jesus must have for you then if you're the gift of God to him, if you're God's gift to him. Perhaps you feel valueless. We go through seasons like that, don't we, where we feel worthless. As though no one cared about me or loved me. I don't matter to anybody. Even the people who say I matter to them are only saying it. Maybe you're in one of those seasons where you feel low and alone. Think about what Jesus is praying for here in John 17. He's reflecting on the fact that God the Father who made the universe gave specially to his son, his church, you. Think about the value you must have in heaven because of how much God loves you and how much the Son paid for you. And this should matter for us in the church, shouldn't it? Uh, do we treat one another as those whom the Father has given to the Son? Do we think about each other? Just look around this room at the people who are sitting near you. Maybe it's the person sitting right next to you or in front of you or behind you, or maybe worse, it's the person that's sitting on the other side of the sanctuary because you don't want anything to do with them right now. Do we think about each other in this church as those for whom the Son died? Those who were given as a gift from the Father to the Son? Do you think about your fellow Christians in those terms? Or do you think of them as those who kind of annoy you, rub you the wrong way, their idiosyncrasies are unique to them, and how can anybody in the world tolerate it? Paul puts it this way in Acts chapter 20, just to add to the uh, idea here. He refers to the church as those whom Christ purchased with his own blood. So let's take the idea of gift from God and ratchet that up a notch. Not only are you a gift from God to the Son and to each other, you're the ones that Christ shed his blood for. 
And how often do we fracture within the church and break fellowship within even a local congregation? I'm not talking about denominationalism or anything like that. I'm talking about even here among ourselves how we break fellowship with each other over what amount to insignificant things. Because we forget who we are in Christ and how much we mean to Him. I wonder how our words might be different towards one another if we consider the implications of God having given us to the Son before the world began. What does the gospel mean about the person sitting next to you? When I do premarital counseling, I ask young couples to go home and write down five things. I say, I want you to write down five things that the gospel makes true about your future spouse. And I'll give you the first one as a freebie. The gospel means that he or she has already been forgiven for all of their sins, including the one you're upset about right now. What else does the gospel make true about the person sitting around you? It means that they're loved by God from before the world began. It means that they're blessed by God with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. It means that they're the ones who will gather shoulder to shoulder with you in glory for all eternity, worshiping the Son. It means that they've been fully forgiven by God for all their sins through the death of His Son, Jesus Christ. It means we have the Spirit dwelling within us and that Jesus prayed that we would have unity together. Do we think of our fellow Christians in those terms? Because those are the terms Christ thinks of us in, and we hear that in His prayer. We've been given to Him by the Father, and He prays for our joy to be full and for our unity to be known to all and for our love for each other to abound even the way that He loves the Father and the Father loves Him. That's the church. That's who we are. Do you see that? Do you know that in your own life? Well, as we've already started to see, Jesus' prayer is not only one of gratitude for the gift, but it's a very focused prayer on that gift. Jesus doesn't pray indiscriminately. Uh, Eric was right to highlight the fact that we all have value as human beings because of the Imago Dei, because we've been made in the image of God. But Christ doesn't pray indiscriminately for all people. He prays very exclusively or particularly for those whom He came to save. Look at verse 9 with me. Jesus says, I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. This is a a hard truth, I think, one that gets a lot of grief in the broader Christian world, Uh, what we in the Reformed Church would refer to as the doctrine of particular redemption, that God gave specific people to His Son to be redeemed by His precious blood. And the argument is made that it's not fair, it's, a, it's unjust that God would select out of the mass of humanity only some. And we don't have time to get into the entire debate or, or doctrine this morning, but there's a couple things that I do want to highlight. First of all, Jesus prays only for His people. Now, if not one word of Jesus would be wasted in His high priestly prayer, How can we presume to suggest that one drop of His precious blood would be wasted on the cross for those who will trample it and never believe in Him? Jesus died and completed the mission He was sent here to complete. 
We think of Jesus, or excuse me, the um, angel's words in Matthew chapter 1 when he appears to Joseph and he tells him, name him Jesus, and then he tells him why. Jesus, of course, meaning God saves, that Old Testament name Yeshua or Joshua. Why should we call him Jesus? Because he will die for the sins of his people. In Mark chapter 10, Jesus is telling his followers that he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom. And then he qualifies that by saying, for many. And here in Jesus' high priestly prayer, the Father, excuse me, he articulates that the Father has given him specific people out of the world, the mass of humanity, all hell-bound sinners, all deserving of God's eternal wrath because of our rejection of him, both our original inherent sin and the sins we do, and he plucks out of his mercy and kindness from among those people who are running headlong away from him and brings them into an estate of salvation by a redeemer who is Jesus Christ. And that's who he came to die for, and that's specifically who he prays for. And so this is very comforting for us for a couple reasons. Number one, it shows us that Jesus prays discriminately for you. He doesn't hear just this mass of voices asking for requests and hopefully yours breaks through the, all the communication and he picks up on your need. Jesus knows your need specifically because you're so important and uniquely given to him as one for whom he died. And so you can be sure that when you pray to him, your great high priest hears your prayer. Secondly, it means that the work he came to accomplish will be done Those who he came to die for will be saved. Think of what Jesus says in John 10. My sheep, they hear my voice and they come when I call them. He assures that those who are his will be saved. Jesus' words here in verse 9 imply that he knows who are his. And he prays specifically for them. But it also implies, or it should suggest to us at least, that we don't know whose are his, do we? And this is where our problems start to uh, rear their ugly heads. We have no idea who are Jesus' people. We're not given that information. If he had given us this sort of uh, heavenly Rolodex, you know, you come to faith and this Rolodex shows up in the mail and you can start flicking through, okay, who are my neighbors who are are, uh, elect? You know, and I'll go to their house, I'll knock on their door and ask them if they want to hear the gospel. And I know for sure that they'll accept because I have it right here in my Rolodex. And that would have been mighty convenient. But it's like Charles Spurgeon said, He said, if God had been pleased to paint a yellow stripe down the back of his elect, I'd be running around London lifting people's shirts up. But he hasn't, so I'm obliged to preach the gospel to everybody. And that's what we've been given to do, isn't it? To declare, to scatter the seed as far as we can. To declare the gospel of repentance as much as we can to as many as we can. To tell people that God has sent his son to die for the sins of all who will place their faith in him. And if you are weary and heavy laden, come to him and he promises to give you rest. And if you're hungry and thirsty for him, come to him and he promises to feed you and quench your thirst without price. And he says, if you come to me, I'll never cast you out. 
And so the question isn't, are you elect and did Jesus die for you? The question is, do you want to come to Christ? Do it. His arms are open wide for anyone who comes to him in faith. And our responsibility as his people is to declare that truth to as many as will hear it. Is that you? Do you desire to turn from your sin out of grief and hatred for it and to turn unto God? Jesus says, come to me, all of you, all of you, and I'll give you rest. He prays specifically for us in his prayer. He focuses the attention of his prayer on those whom he's been given by the Father. Well, lastly, I do want us to see, if you are in Christ, I want you to think for a moment with me about how Jesus prays for you. I said Jesus prays with a little bit of hyperbole, a little bit of exaggeration. This is one of the most amazing things in this text, and I owe a dear friend for pointing it out to me. Notice how Jesus speaks of his disciples in the early part of his prayer for them. Listen again to verses 6 through 8. I have manifested your name to them whom you gave me out of the world. Uh, Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Really? I mean, I've read the Gospels before. They They don't strike me as the sort who are doing a really good job of being obedient to Christ, you know, day in and day out. There have been some pretty sharp disagreements. Even recently, who's going to be the most important one in the kingdom? Remember that one? Oh, Jesus, we don't want you to go die in Jerusalem. He says, get behind me, Satan. They have kept your word. They know that everything you have given me is from you. Do they? Because as I think back across the accounts of the Gospels, I think of times where it was kept from them and they didn't understand what Jesus was teaching. How many times do they ask him to explain the parables? How many times does Jesus have to say things like, I've been with you all this time and you still don't know? Just earlier in this discourse, back in chapter 14, Thomas says, show us the Father. And he goes, Thomas, I've been with you all this time and you don't get it yet? And yet here he is praying for them as if they've perfectly understood, as if they've perfectly kept his commandments, as if they've perfectly obeyed and done all that he said and understood it. I can think of countless examples of them not keeping his word, not knowing what's going on, not receiving this as from the Father. But here Jesus is as if they were exemplary disciples. Here's the point. When Jesus makes intercession for his people, for you, he prays according to his obedience. He prays according to his righteousness. He prays according to his faithfulness. He doesn't pray, Holy Father, they keep on failing. They keep on messing up. They keep on sinning. They keep on forgetting. They keep on misunderstanding. They keep on arguing. And imagine if he continued praying that prayer. They do deserve your wrath. They don't deserve your love. They do deserve hell. They don't deserve eternal life. They sure don't deserve your blessing, and they don't deserve my joy. Look at them. What a mess. But Jesus doesn't pray that way for his people, does he? He prays according to his perfect righteousness given to you 
by faith. Imagine Jesus praying this way to the Father, I have never failed. I've never messed up. I've never sinned. I've never forgotten your word or your will. I do deserve your love. I do deserve your blessing. I do deserve your joy. I am eternal life, and they are mine, and everything that's mine is theirs. That's how Jesus prays for his people. He prays for his disciples as if they've been far more successful and faithful than they really are. And he prays for you and me in heaven according to his blood, according to his righteousness. Not ours, not the works we do. And thank the Lord that he doesn't. Because our works are like filthy rags. And there's no way that we could keep his law perfectly. No way that we could earn our way into heaven either by ritual or practice but only by Christ's righteousness. I wonder if the disciples noticed this as he was praying, if they thought that this sounded like a little bit of an exaggeration on their parts. Now, you and I, boy, when when someone hurts us, we are about as uncharitable as they come, aren't we? The smallest offense turns into a huge mountain of sin against us, doesn't it? The smallest harm done to us, the smallest sadness caused in our hearts turns into a broken relationship, unkind, uncharitable thinking and words directed at other people. But we are sinners, and yet Christ prays for us as saints. He prays for us according to His righteous deeds, His perfect blood, and His obedience. And that's good news for us. That's good news for us as those who have a great high priest in heaven who prays for his people ever living to intercede for us and able to save us to the uttermost. This is what Jesus' high priestly role is for us. Larger Catechism question 55 asks, how does Christ make intercession for us? And it says, Christ makes intercession by appearing in our nature continually before the Father in heaven in the merit of his obedience and sacrifice on earth declaring his will to have it applied to all believers. That's good news, isn't it? That's good news. We're like the moon. Some of us probably look a bit more like the moon than others. But we're covered in craters, aren't we? We have no light in ourselves. No ability to produce our own light. The best the moon can do is reflect. But boy, when it does... It's brilliant, isn't it? And Jesus is the Son who shines His light onto us. As the Father sees us, He doesn't see dark, shadowy, crater-ridden surface of our souls. He sees the light of Christ, His righteousness given to us. That's what His high priestly work is for us, isn't it? Do you know Christ is this great high priest, always interceding for you, never failing to bring his blood and his sacrifice before the Father, loving you as that wonderful gift given to him from eternity past, the one he died for specifically. I pray that you do. You know, we need no other sacrifice. We can bring no other plea. It's enough that Jesus died and that he died for you and for me. We need no other priest. We have a great high priest in heaven who's been the perfect sacrifice once for all. 
and who always pleads his own blood on behalf of his people. And he calls you this morning to turn to him in faith, to repent with grief and hatred from your sin, and apprehension of God's mercy for you in Christ Jesus, and receive by faith alone the righteousness of Christ, which is given to us as a gift from him. Perhaps you're familiar with the name J. Gresham Machen, the founder of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, died on January 1st, 1936, from a bad cold at a young age. Machen, when he was lying in, in the bed at a hotel room in North Dakota, his last words were, the active obedience of Christ. There's no hope without it. Christ's obedience is given to us in the gospel and received by faith. And he prays as if that were true of these disciples. And if you come to him in faith, he'll pray as if that's true for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your Son, our great high priest, Jesus Christ, who ever lives to intercede for us. We ask, God, that you would help us to know him more, to trust that he indeed loves us and has given himself up for us. And would you remind us how he thinks of others around us that we might not be guilty of maligning and slandering those whom he loves. Help us to turn to him in faith and receive what's only able to be given by faith, that gift of God, the eternal life of believing in your son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.